Welcome to the Otherwise Podcast, Season 2. I'm Casey Tiger, your host. I'm an author, pastor, and spiritual director. The quote that I hear most often associated with the book that we'll be discussing or the books that we'll be discussing today is this one. Our hearts are restless, O God, until they find rest in you. The quote comes from an author, St. Augustine, and the book is called Confessions. Today's interview is a little bit different because our guest, Austin Gone reached out to me. I had a chance to endorse his book called A Restless Age. And he reached out and said, what if we had a conversation about Augustine, about our memories, about your book? And so this is less about me interviewing Austin and more about us just having a general conversation about memories and what we do with them and what Augustine did with his and how that relates to what we're doing today. So you'll be sitting in and eavesdropping on us, talking about all sorts of different things. So today's conversation will go in a little different direction. Austin Goen is at Bellevue Christian Church. He's the associate pastor there, and he leads a ministry for young adults. And his book is oriented towards young adults, but as a person who read it before it came out, I can tell you that there are resonances for every age and every stage because a lot of us feel restless. A lot of us have memories that cause us to be restless. So what do we do with those? And how do we let the ancients, people like Augustine, be our guide? That's what we're going to talk about today with our new friend, Austin Gomez. Man, this is this conversation has taken a little bit for us to get going because God bless technology. We both have had to shut down and restart and open and and do all sorts of things. And I feel good about that, knowing that you're the millennial in this conversation. And we both were wrestling, and I know I wrestle with this stuff, but you you were wrestling as well. You, you have no so, idea. I, just, you feel just good ma- about yourself. That just makes me feel better. It really does make me feel better. So well, I'm glad we get to talk. Me too. I'm, I'm happy to be here. So when you reached out to me uh, about this book that you've just written about uh, being restless and born out of uh, born out of your love. First of all, and you, you, people who read this will see it from the beginning, the love for Augustine that you have, uh, but also the work you do at Bellevue Christian Church. There's this very strong, incisive, very earthy kind of thing that happens in Augustine that I hear happening in you where you're always connecting these the concepts that are really big and ephemeral to stuff that's real. So I'm going to put that to the test because uh, the first question I always ask on the podcast is, if you had to define the word wisdom, uh, where would you start? So that's very much taking a a high concept and bringing it into the practical. But uh, I don't want to give you your answer. If you had to define wisdom, where would you where would you well, start? Well, uh, I'm not even going to talk about Augustine yet. I think would it be sucking up if I quote Dallas Willard? Is that allowed? <laughs> I feel like <laughs> it happens. It's I'm surprised it's taken this long for it to happen. So go for it. Um, he I don't know exactly what he says about wisdom, but he has a quote on reality that I love. And he says that reality is what you run into when you're wrong. You know, and I actually have that in, in, in the opening chapter of my book on uh, on on young adults. And um, but I like that quote because in when it comes to wisdom, what I think about wisdom is wisdom is what you get when you're tired of running into reality and you're ready to run with it. Um, and the reality, not just reality as we think of reality, but reality as God thinks of it. And so 
when I think that's what Proverbs really is, it's, it's saying this is this is what living with the grain of how God created the universe looks like. And when you're tired of running into reality, this is this is for you. Yeah. You can start practicing wisdom. Um, so I quote Dallas Willard. Yeah, Dallas just always had that ability to say things in a way that you heard it and you said, of course, of course, that's ex- that's exactly what I was thinking. You either said that or you said, well, I'm going to have to sit with that for like a month because I'm not quite sure what to make of it just yet. Um, you are you are working in your book, A Restless Age, with two things that, are re- that were really interesting to me, which is guess St. Augustine, who... As famous and infamous, I think I think both of those things would apply. But then also bringing his wisdom to uh, a generational conversation. And so when you talk about running into reality, um, a lot of people are, a lot of older generations look at millennial generations and say, it's time, you know, those kids need to run into some reality. Uh, so you're bringing that same kind of wisdom into the conversation. How do you see Augustine connecting with that sort of lived experience of running face first into reality for the generation that you're writing for? Yeah, the the thing about Augustine, so I'll tell you how this worked for me, is I read Augustine's Confessions first as a freshman at Lincoln Christian University, which is where both of us um, studied at different times. And I didn't get it. I didn't, did nothing for me. I skimmed it, you know, got, we had these discussion groups, made it through, put it on my shelf, planned to never read it again. And then I picked it up again when I was trying to find a way to read one book for two classes in seminary a few years ago. And I found a way to read Augustine's Confessions for both classes. But at that time, I was like deep in the throes of young adults ministry and just feeling the success and the failures of that. And And as I was reading Augustine's Confessions, I just said, he sounds like somebody that could be ripped straight out of my ministry. And I think one of the reasons is, is because Augustine, Augustine's age, the, the, you know, fourth century, there is a lot of similarities to where we are now when it comes to just religious options and what the world is like. Um, And I really think our world is a little bit more similar to Augustine's than it is even to the world of our great grandparents that our grandparents, um, for those reasons, and just the fact that he went through breakups, he struggled with habits, um, he couldn't figure out where he belonged, um, he went through and burned through jobs and careers as he was trying to figure out what he was supposed to do with his life. And so all of that, I just kept thinking, this sounds like the young adults I know. And the good thing about Augustine's Confessions is he places all those experiences in a story that has, in some sense, a happy ending that brings you to the gospel. And so the point of connection was pretty clear for me. Um, as I was reading that in the middle of young adult ministry, um, that, that experience awakened things from that book that had been dead yeah. to me for some reason when I was 18 or 19 when I first read it, which is strange because I those are the very people I think should read the book. So when you, for people who aren't familiar with confessions, probably one of the most, uh, one of the most read and quoted spiritual classics in history but it's it's something that I feel like you have to someone has to open the door to it for you. Um, for people who ha- who aren't familiar with the confessions, what is what is it? What is what is he setting out to do in this book? Yeah, that's the question people have been asking about it for a while because it's hard to say um, because he's it, you know if you call it it feels like a memoir um, or a spiritual memoir, 
But then there are so many moments that it doesn't feel like that, that it's hard to put it there on that shelf in the library. So he's definitely, what he's trying to do is he's trying to tell his story. Um, he's like hitting 40, you know, and he's looking back on basically his late teens to his early 30s, which is the point where he walked away from God and then came back to God. And basically, so late teens through early 30s, and he's trying to figure this out. But he's exploring that with God. So the whole book ends up being a prayer at the same time where he's like, God, show me where you were at work in my team. Show me where you were at work when I moved to Rome. Show me where you were at work when I left Rome because it was terrible and moved to Milan. Show me where you were at work when I met this person or this person. And so he's kind of getting into his memory with God, trying to make sense of it, trying to make connections and to see how God was bringing him forth ultimately to his point of conversion at 32 um, depending on how you count. But, and so it's, it feels like a memoir at times and at other times he just dips into like philosophy. And then there's other times where he just gets off on these theological tangents. Um, and then the last four books, or you might call them chapters, the, the last four books of Augustine's confessions, he's just going off on all of these philosophy of memory and creation and, and time and it's like, what does this have to do with a memoir? Like, this doesn't moving the this doesn't feel like it's moving the story forward. And so, but the most most of the book is a spiritual memoir with lots of theological and philosophical tidbits kind of shoved in there, all kind of wrapped up in a prayer and a conversation with God. Um, which, by the way, is why my favorite translation is by Sarah Rudin. She has a translation that's fairly new, and it's very conversational in the way it's written, which makes it feel more the tone that it was probably intended to be as a conversation. Yeah. yeah. So that makes it, I mean, when you hear that and you take off the time constraints, like you said, the time he, in which he lived is very similar to where we are now, but also the experience. It's very rare that we witness, it's very rare that we perfectly capture the presence of what God is doing as it's happening more often we capture it in retrospect. And for him, it was, it's a, it's a journey with his own sexuality. It's a journey with his own intellectual life. So all these things are like, we're ticking all the boxes of the normal human experience. And that's what I, th I think is best about confessions is any human being who picks it up can find themselves either at one of the stages or at one of the crossroads. So if they've wrestled with their sexuality or they've wrestled with their um, intellectual life and can I really believe this and who are the influences and what, what you know, his, his mother is a huge part of his life, how, how our parents influence us and guide us and, and shepherd us. So that, that idea of revisiting the things that have happened before um, and trying to see where God is active is, you know, it's, it's, it's important to me. It's why I wrote a book on memories, but but I could see that in Augustine yeah. was the person everybody asked me, oh, so you're going to do a lot with Augustine. You're writing a book on memory. And I thought he need, he would need his own, you know, like I'm not just going to sling it in there sideways. Uh, there's one Paula Friedrich, Friedrichsen quote about Augustine in the book, but not a, not a full thing. So I leave, I leave that up to you guys who, yeah, who know I mean, Augustine well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Somebody else can do that one. I mean, the stuff he writes about memory, in book 10 is, is really phenomenal. Um, I was revisiting it as we were coming to this conversation and he, but it's like, it's a whole nother level. It's hard to follow. I tell most people who read Augustine's confessions, if you make it through book nine, you can stop there and you're okay. Um, there's good stuff in books 10 through 13, 
but don't feel like a failure if you stop it at the end of book nine. Like, that's okay. Because that's where memoirs stop and a whole nother thing begin. Um, but yeah, I think it's okay. Um, but it's interesting, I think, as I was thinking about your book, that's the whole reason, you know, I reached out to you, as, as you mentioned, is I was, I had just finished reading yours, and I was thinking about Augustine and memory, and it's just, there's so much overlap between what you're writing, especially given fresh neuroscientific research into memory that's giving us all kinds of insights into how our memory works, and then Augustine approaching it more from just kind of like a lived experience and, and philosophy and trying to understand how his memory works long before MRI scanners and things like that could tell us more about how a brain works. Um, so in your book, you talk a little bit about memory. And I'm interested in maybe, I don't know if you want to go here now, but um, in thinking about how, you know, what you learned about memory from neuroscience and psychology and what you're reading about. I know you wrote a whole book on this, but, you know, bringing that together on how, how does memory basically work? And maybe you're sharing a little bit about, I'll share a little bit about how Augustine thinks about memory as well. Yeah. Yeah, the the interesting thing is a lot of a lot of the energy for the for the writing that I was doing on this didn't come from neuroscience. I mean, I, the neuroscience part is big, uh, but there was a there was actually a conversation on another podcast where a woman named Maria Popova who writes just she does something called brain pickings, where it's a website that just connects old texts or insights or studies with contemporary realities. And it's just fascinating. Her email yeah. newsletter is fantastic. But she was telling newsletter. us, yeah, you, you, <laughs> you have to grab a hold of that. She was telling a story about her grandfather who uh, lived, I believe, uh, she's Hungarian. So I believe her grandfather lived in Hungary and he smuggled books over the border uh, during the period of time in which he lived, which there was not a lot of literature being let in and out. And so he would smuggle first editions of like the great, you know, uh, all these different great pieces of literature. And she eventually finds them. This story is definitely going somewhere some at some point. She, she finds them and she opens them up and she looks. And not only is there the text of the book, but on the margins, there are all her grandfather's notes and she said there's this richness to his what they call marginalia, which is the experience he has in his generation with books of the previous generation. And I saw that and I thought, that's what we're constantly doing. So whether it's with the scriptures, whether it's with our own family stories, whether it's our national stories, you and I are writing in the margins. And so that that sort of makes us. And so that's when I started getting into the neuroscience of how memories really stick and uh, that there's this there's this unbelievably detailed stuff that we know about memories. And then there's just this vast field of like, uh, kind of, you know, so, <laughs> so when you have brilliant people with multiple degrees going, well, I think it's something like this, but I could be wrong. Um, well, I'm sure it's more than what I know, which is pretty much just <laughs> Augustine's Confessions, Book 10, and Pixar's Inside Out. Um, everything I know about memory is those two things um, and the intersection of that, yeah. that, that. That's what I know. Well, there's the, I mean, you get through it, like there's the fragility of it. Like all of us are recording memories through our own lenses. So through our eyesight through our hearing, sight, taste, town, sound, touch, smell, the whole nine yards. And then each of those little pieces of information has like 30 to 60 seconds uh, or else it dies. 
And that's our short-term memory. And short-term is built just for functional living. And so it doesn't really survive past that unless we take it and we deal with it and we play with it and we hang on to it. And then it gets archived away and our brain then changes shape around that idea so that we can go back and retrieve it uh, over and over again. So like for you and I, we have this experience of being at Lincoln. Uh, Our brains have a certain shape to them around being in alumni hall or being in Hargrove Chapel or being in those certain certain spaces that we can easily go back and, and pull out. Or we were trying to remember names of people earlier, you and I, as we were talking, like some of those people have got a groove, some of them don't. So, so it, it shapes us so much because then it, then it creates the kind of person that we are. It's the stories we live by and the scripts that we execute every day. And the same was true of Augustine. Like, he wrote from that place of, this is who I used to be, and this is how I got to where I am. And that's where there's so much tension in confessions. He's constantly saying, on the one hand, I'm, I feel like this insight is here. And on the other hand, I'm still, I'm still not there yet. So I think that's the beautiful part of it. Like, I remember a time when I was here, but now I'm still kind of wrestling with that. And there's this push-pull tension that he's always, he seems, yeah. always, you may correct me if I'm wrong. It seems like he's always working with. Yeah, I think, well, I was struck when you were talking a minute ago about short-term and long-term memory, you know, certain things stick and certain things don't. I remember when, and as I recall, you talked about why you can remember these really significant events. Like I can remember the birth of my son or getting married or my first day of college, you know, these, these things, I can remember the way it felt. I can remember conversations I had, but I can't remember literally yesterday, many, most of what happened yesterday. I have a hard time recalling that. And in Augustine's confessions, most of, I mean, he's digging into long-term memory here. He's in his, he's a pro, I don't know if, I can't remember exactly how old he is, but this is, he's, he's hit, he's around 40. And, you know, he's basically going back to, he starts as an infant. He doesn't remember anything. He just observes infants and imagines what infancy was like. But then he goes, you know, basically from his teens through his 30s, and it's all this long-term memory. So when when Augustine is getting into his long-term memory, um, what's, what is he doing there? What's, when, you know, when he's sitting down to write Augustine's confessions, you know, let's say I was sitting down to write my own confessions from, you know, I'm trying to think back 10 years. What am I doing? What? What kinds of thoughts am I thinking to like try to get to get some of that stuff yeah. out? Well, a lot of what you're doing is you're looking for for access points. You're looking for uh, every every idea, every memory has some kind of vehicle that takes us back there. So sometimes it's imagining a detail. Uh, the reason it's I feel like it's so important to the spiritual life is we will live through similar things over and over again. Uh, so the, the writer of Ecclesiastes was right. There's really nothing new under the sun. Every situation is similar. Uh, the circumstances are different, but we can access things because there's already a neural pathway cut in our brains. All we have to do is figure out what are the details that lead us down that path once again. And so every time you see your son, mm-hmm. uh, son or daughter, son, Levi, son. So every time you see Levi, you, you have a vehicle that takes you back to his, every time you see your wife, you think about, you can, you can reach back to your wedding. You may not be able to grab all the details, but there are certain details that stuck. Some of them because you saw them and you treasured them. And some of them because, um, 
some of them because they just they just happened. The other thing we know, which is so weird, is that anything that you smell is automatically long term. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting when you wrote that in your book. I shared that immediately with my wife. I said, "Did you know <laughs> we just talked about things that we need to remember? How can we make them smelly?" Um, yeah. yeah, but uh, I thought that was really intriguing. That, that well, smell because you have. Your, your, your smell centers are right beside your hippocampus, which is the, basically the concierge of your memory. It's the thing that ushers things from short term to long term. So there's two places where our memories, where our, our, where we start the process. One of them is the amygdala and those are all like fight or flight things. So some experiences just go straight there and evoke this like lizard survival response uh, but you can't live there. The other ones go to your hippocampus, but smell, the smell receptors are right behind your hippocampus. So it's like their next door neighbors. So they just skip the whole process of long of short term. And it just goes, we just archived this straight over here. So any of those smells that you have, like they're there, baby, they're stuck forever. Baby poop is pretty much the main smell in my life right now. Oh <laughs> um, he's a, my God. He's a year and a half old. I don't know if this is what you imagine talking about when you started Otherwise Pod, but um, <laughs> this is where I'm at in my life. I just feel like I can always smell it all the time. Uh, it yeah. never goes away. But. It's either coming, going away, or preparing. You know, you're in the midst of it. It's a present, past, and future kind of thing. Well, good. I'm glad I have some neuroscience to back up. Um, yeah, a little bit of what I'm experiencing. <laughs> I think. So I'm. Yeah, I'm thinking Augustine is. What Augustine is reaching for is, and that's interesting, he would say, you know, I looked at children and I think about what it would be like to be an infant. And what he's doing is sort of playing out his life up to this, up to the point where he is and saying, yeah. I must have been like, because I think mm-hmm. we can do that. I can think about certain personality traits that I have and then try to remember what was it like as a kid to be that kid. Yeah. Um, I was always, I, I, I craved attention and I grew up in a neighborhood of, uh, of old guys who were way older than me, far older than me. And so I can imagine what it was like to be six, seven, eight, even though I don't necessarily remember them. I do remember some things. So what happens when I do that, even right now, there are certain scenes that come to mind, like fights I got in playing football or things like that, that were all rooted in that particular idea. So some of that stuff is archived deeper, uh, maybe than we even think. It's and interesting. Maybe, maybe Augustine is reaching for that. Uh, yeah, and it's it's weird too. This might not have anything to do with Augustine yet, but like the way memory works, where there's there's parts of my life that I don't remember, but other people have told me about it, and it's now it's become part of my memory, even though I I don't actually remember the experience of it. Having heard somebody else tell it about tell it to me so many times, I now feel like I remember this thing, even though I, I don't think I do. It's like my wife where we have certain vacation stories from before I was married um, that my family shares and we always tell them. My wife feels like now she was, she remembers them because she's been told these stories of my family so many times. Anyways, memory's just, just funky like that. Well, um, would you, would you say those family stories are completely a hundred percent factually accurate? Uh, probably not at this point. I think they've taken on their own legendary details and <laughs> we remember what we want and we like the version of the story that we tell. Um, well, there, my bro- my brother-in-law is the best storyteller in our family. So we tend to just go with his version. Um, and the reason I asked that is because that, what you just described is exactly how faith is passed down from generation to generation. You know, Monica, yeah. Augustine's mother had carried this faith that she received from her 
And so it's not as it's not to call into question the faith we've received, but just to know we're we're receiving something that has been in the memory of other people for centuries, for hundreds of years before us. And it was even there, you know, in Deuteronomy, Moses talks about when your kids ask, uh, ask you, why do you celebrate Passover? Talk to them about the time that God brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand. They'll never experience it, but they are part of a people who that's their yeah. heritage. And that's like, that becomes our story. It becomes, we become the us, even though it does like that same thing happens at the communion table where it's like, we were there. This is our story. This is, he said, do this to remember of me. It's like, it becomes our, our memory. It becomes something, a story that shapes us. That's as if it was my own thing that happened to me. Yeah. Um, when you, a minute ago, I wanted to remember this a minute ago, you mentioned about, you know, going into our memory and trying to recall. There's a great quote. I would, um, when Augustine in book 10, when he starts talking about memory, he, he says this when he's trying to talk about what it's like to go into the palace of memory. And he has all these metaphors for memory. He calls it one point like spacious palaces of memory. He calls it deep caverns of memory. He calls it the stomach of the mind at one point. Um, that it just eats up our experiences. Um, but anyways, at one point he's exploring it and he's trying, essentially in book 10, what he's trying to do is figure out what he just did um, in books one through nine. He say, what did I just do in exploring my memory? And he says this, he says, when I'm there in my memory, whatever it is I want, I ask for it to be produced. He says, certain things issue forth immediately. Uh, certain other things need a lengthy search. And it's as if they were being dug out from this or that obscure neglected container. And certain other things charge at you in hordes. When you're asking and looking for something else, they rush into the open as if they're saying, "Is it us? Maybe, or is it maybe us you want?" Um, and I find that I find that interesting. That you know, you don't when you go into your memory, it's a it's quite an endeavor. You don't know what you're going to get when you decide to start remembering. And I mean, that's what, as I recall, is all about is is intentionally remembering. But it's not it's not a I mean. It's safe in the, in the way that you're with God and that God, you're with God as you're going into memory. But it's risky because you're going to have to encounter things that maybe you don't want to recall and things that you prefer where they are, lodged deep in the caverns of the memory. But he, he said they rush at you in horde. Like they're just like, hey, remember us? Like I tried to forget you. <laughs> I want to remember the other stuff. Um, why can't that rush out? That's fascinating that you would say that because for several things just triggered one is the idea of the memory palace is the palace of memory is um, it's pretty ancient. Actually, orators and uh, rhetoricians like Cicero would talk about that, that apparently there was a moment and you probably you're smiling like, you know, this there's. Well, my dad, he's one of those ancient. <laughs> rhetoricians yeah. That so we're talking about this guy who uh, apparently is he was at a dinner party and his uh, his castle burned down. And he survived. And they were trying to identify the remains. I mean, this is like third, fourth century. And they were trying to identify the remains of each person. And he went back in his mind and remembered where each person was sitting around the table and could tell you who they were and where they were. And they identified the remains. And so memory champions, like guys who do competitive memory stuff, which is wild. So I started reading about that, that world and it's it's nuts. I think that is that book walking with our moonwalking. Yes. With That's the book. Yeah. These guys who will, who will do two decks of cards 
from memory. I mean, what they do is they create uh, they create a memory palace. They create a space in their head where all of this stuff lives in different rooms, and then they just search the different rooms. So it's fascinating he would say that. The idea of encountering those hordes is interesting, too, because it feels like, and when I was writing the book, it, I think there were people who... I was thinking of, I believe there were people I was thinking of who would say, I don't really have to do this. Like Augustine didn't have to explore his memories. He, ch- he chose to do that. And so the hordes were sort of something he called forth. And so I, I think people would say, oh, I don't really have to go back and explore that memory. And the conclusion I came to was the the dark stuff. So it's great when we have the communion metaphors or the Passover metaphors that shape us in a healthy way. But a lot of us have memories that are shaping us even now in a destructive way. And so to leave them in the past is actually to empower them rather than to take them into the present, into the light and sort of put them out there and name them for what they are and then let God begin to form us around that story and say, this is, this has had a negative impact on you. It's broken you. It's taken away your identity and your wisdom and your place. I, I would love to go into this with you because you can't get rid of it. Let's go into it together and begin to redeem it and give it value for where you're headed. And so I love that idea. You know, Augustine goes in and the, the hordes, come rushing at him and we kind of see we kind of see that process of digging around in our memories as dude I don't want to let loose whatever is in there and my my protest to that would be well it's already forming you uh We've already yeah, quoted, we've already great... quoted Dallas. Dallas always said that we're all <laughs> being formed spiritually one way or another. Um and I think that's still true. Uh so yeah, so that I that idea of going in and releasing the hordes do we really have to do that? And my, my answer would be only, only if we want to see redemption of the stuff that has the most power over us. I think that's the idea is that the hordes are there and they're shaping us and it's only it's not a matter of like will i release them or not it's a matter of um will i go in intentionally or will i continue to let it unintentionally shape my life and the beauty of spiritual autobiography and like trying to explore your memories is that like you mentioned is like when you go into your memories you aren't going in alone when you make this a spiritual practice it's not just you and your memories it's you and god and your memories and so it completely changes the game. And God can show you, like this is what Augustine's whole story is about, is Augustine was going to some of the most painful experiences of his, of his life, uh, a breakup that, that felt like his, his flesh was ripped in half, a, uh, a, a burn, almost like on the edge of burnout in his career, um, moving away from Rome because he had such a terrible experience. Um, and all these different things are his addiction to lust. And, but when he goes in with God, he's suddenly able to see where God was at work, even in the worst moments of his life. Um, and he didn't have to be afraid of the hordes anymore. He didn't have to be afraid of like 
just being swallowed up in them um, because he knew that, I don't know, I think of Psalm 139 where it says, search me and know my inmost thoughts. And that's what we're doing with God. We're saying, search me. I'm, and I'm going to go with you too. Like, we're going to go in this together. And, you know, we think of that in the context of sin and confession, but I think that counts for our memory as well, that our inmost thoughts for Augustine, there's these deep caverns of memory that even God can expose for us that maybe we don't even remember ourselves, but God will bring up because he wants to redeem it. Um, yeah. And yeah, with, I don't know why we're on spiritual autobiographies. You mentioned that as a practice, um, in your book, I think on page 81, you mentioned as a practice. Now, did you, have you written, you know, spiritual autobiography or how did you, what did the practice of spiritual autobiography look like for you? Yeah, I actually, most of my work uh, that I had done with spiritual autobiographies had been from, uh, an assignment. So I'd done it probably three or four times in seminary in different classes where they assigned you to write a spiritual autobiography. Uh, and there was, I didn't know how helpful it was until I sort of did a retrospective look at it and how different they were. Um, because when you start to write it, most of us, even those of us who are just way too wordy, like that's one of my problems is I, I could use about 30 less words to convey certain things. Um, if we're not, but even the wordiest of us are looking to convey we're not looking to create like a 500-page document. So what we want to do is get at the stuff that matters the most. So we start writing a spiritual autobiography. You start thinking, so when I think of my life and I think of spirituality, where did it all start? Where, what's the first thing that comes to mind? And a lot of times, like for me, it would be uh, the church I grew up in as a kid. And then typically you go from a foundational experience to some kind of crisis. So, you know, Augustine has his, his crisis points. My autobiography would go to a crisis point from there. Uh, some of us have multiple, just a multitude of crisis moments. Some of us have the hinges that go from crisis to blessing and then crisis again. And this is an idea I've been thinking about a lot about the cycle of our spiritual life rather than the timeline, because it seems like we keep coming yeah. around uh, again and again, yeah. as if it's the first time. Um, so I think the, the blessing for me of the spiritual autobiography is being able to whittle down. And it, I think it changes from era of your life to era in your twenties, your autobiography obviously has got some more content between 20 and 30, but you also may change what's more important because now you begin to see it longer. So Augustine looking back on his twenties at yeah. 40, would have been so different than looking at his 20s at 30 because he's got more distance and perspective, which to me, I'm in a soapbox for a second. One of my favorite books is actually just a miracle, which is Thomas Merton's The Seven Story Mountain. I just read it for the first time. At 25, he writes this epic autobiography. And how do you, I mean, he has such perspective on his own life at that age. I, I, I couldn't have done that. So I think it's rare the person who can actually grab a hold of that kind of objective thinking about their life. Like we'd like to think we know everything about ourselves at every age. And I, it's just, 
it just can't be true. I think time gives us a gift to be able to see things as they really are. So that's what this, for me, that's what the spiritual autobiography practice does is it gives us a chance to put in one place all of the things, both positive and negative, that have shaped us the most. Well, I think I think the thing that helps, like you know, you talk about it, it can be it can be a little bit overwhelming when you're and you don't know what's important when you're first trying to explore it and think about it. You know, we do something at our church, and I talk about this in a restless stage at the end, is an exercise adapted from a seminary professor at Fuller named Terry Walling, and uh, he developed something called, for leaders actually called the sticky note timeline. And basically, what it is is it's doing what you're talking about. But it's for somebody who's like, I'm just not a great writer. Like the, the concept of writing, like, you know, they're thinking back to like high school. I'm like, okay, there's an intro and a conclusion and there's three body paragraphs. Like, okay, uh, there's a thesis state. Like, forget all that. The good thing about a sticking out timeline is you just, you just go through your memory and you literally write down everything significant that you can think of on a, on a yellow post-it note or whatever. And um, events and people and mentors and books and um, uh, a significant movie you watch, like all that kind of stuff or an experience or a breakup or a death. And then at the, after you get all those memories out, everything you can think of that's significant, you just transfer some of them to pink that are negative ones that were negative at the time you experienced them. And then you order them out as best as you can. Um, basically top to bottom, top to bottom, top to bottom, just kind of going over across an X axis. And when, and then you start to see kind of your story forming. And then what you get to do is when you have all of your, the events of your life put out before you, some pink, some yellow, you start to look for where were like significant turning points. Like where did you have a major like setback or a major spring forward or something like that? Or, um, and then you try to see what are some chapters that maybe you put over your life. And then what are some insights you can draw out from some of those turning points? And then by the end of like a couple hours, you got, you got your story out there. And it's amazing watching when we do that at our church, watching how quickly somebody is, they want to share it with somebody because it's this big visual. And other people are like, I want nobody to see this ever um, because of the things I put on there. Um, but I think that that can be, like you could take Augustine's Confessions and you could do it with sticky notes if you wanted. And I have an, I have an example of that in the book. But I think that that's a, a, an approach to spiritual autobiography that, that, is a great starting point for a lot of people who who think I can't do that. I wouldn't know where to start. I can't write. You know, Augustine wrote five hundred, you know, four hundred something pages, and Merton wrote that incredible piece of of literature at twenty five. And I'm just like, where yeah. do you even start? Post it notes yeah. are a great way to start. So I think. for me, the memories uh, that that autobiography is really revealing the things that have made us who we are. For you, when you do that with your community. What, what do people start seeing? What do they start saying? What, what are some of the things that have been, that have come out of that sticky note exercise with uh, people you've worked with? I think the biggest insight that people get is when you're looking back on your life, you are able to see where God might have been at work, where in the moment you could not see it. And what that ends up happening is you begin to wonder, where might God be at work right now? And I can't see it. And it completely changes because you realize you're currently living some of the next set of post-it notes live. You're in the middle of them. And there are some pink ones that are going to come. But in the midst of that, you know that eventually you're going to be able to look at this and say, God was at work even in the worst. Or God was at work even in the best. Like, and so what ends up happening, I think the biggest insight that people get is to see that 
that A, God was at work, and then begin to ask, where might God be at work right now? Or how might God be using my, and this is how you know the exercise originally intended, how might God be using my story to help reveal my particular way of being in the world, how my contribution? Because like, you know, we talk a lot about how your personality contributes, your strength, you know, your Enneagram number, all these things, but your, your timeline, your story has a huge shape in the kinds of things that you're going to do and the ways that you're going to be able to be a part of what God's doing in the world. Um, and most of us just have never thought about our story in that yeah. way. What is the, so Augustine didn't die at 40. So obviously he had some more time after this whole reflection that we find in confessions. What, what are the choices that you see people making? So you do the exercise, we revisit our memories. Uh, we, we take a step into some really dark places. We start to see redemption happen. We start to see our lives differently. What do you see as some of the formational choices people make? as a result like where where do we where do you where did you go after you started exploring augustine and some of the restless things that you found in him and where do people where do you find people go at what's the next step that they usually take after this well i think it's it's hard to say because it ends up different for everybody you know some people just close it up and they're like you know that was a good thing i know that now and then you know, for people like me, I am often finding myself getting it out um, with other people and sharing it when I have a point, when they hear a point in their life, I'm like, can I share my story with you? I don't think you realize that my life and your life overlap at, at this weird one, at this one post-it note. Like, there's this one thing that we both experience that I understand and that you understand as well. Um, Alan Jacobs has a, let me know if I'm not answering your question, but Alan Jacobs has a uh, uh, an essay he wrote on... I think I have it in my confession somewhere um, on spiritual autobiography and, and like telling your story. And he says that built into the nature of Christian narrative of telling your story is witness and that our stories aren't just for our own healing, but that our stories are for the, for other people's healing as well. And that it's often by, by restricting your story to yourself, by restricting the, the limits of how far that story can heal to your own wounds you're actually taking away the healing power of your story for some other person who might have gone through something similar. And so that's for us, the main, the main gist of it for us that we hope that people get out of it, and this seems to be, is one, is figuring out how does your story prepare you to, for, to serve in the particular way God has built you to serve? And then two, who in your life needs to hear this, this story? Who in your life um, might resonate with this aspect of your story and needs the healing that you've found? Um, by going into your own story with God. And I feel like your book welcomes people to do that. Not just the practices, yeah. but I think th I feel like the content, especially that it's, you know, there's a generational thrust to the book, but even reading it for myself, I found some things that were, that were resonant with my experience at 40. Um, that were, that were, that, that was that very thing, which was, you know, how do I make sense of where God is? How do I make sense of this feeling? I mean, some of that, some of those memories are just about, I remember feeling this way. Why did I feel that way? Or I know how to feel about this. Just like you pulling out your life's, your story and saying, I know exactly what it felt like to be at that spot because here's where I was. It might be a little different, you know, it'll be unique, but, but definitely there's some resonance there. 
Well, and I think the thing about Augustine that reading Confessions is Augustine finds a metaphor that guides how he interprets his story. And for Augustine, it's the meta- metaphor of restless and searching for rest. And, you know, out of Matthew um, 11, 28 through 30, that concept of come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. And he takes that image and he lays it over his whole story. And so when he looks at himself in his teens chasing after lust or um, sleeping around or are looking for success in his work and looking for accolade and applause and likes and all those things, or looking for belonging, when he has this metaphor in mind or this analogy, he's able to say, oh, I was looking for rest in all these places. And then he's able to say, oh, but God's where I was looking. God is what I've been looking for in all. I've been looking for it in all the wrong places. And so I think often finding a metaphor and laying that over our story can be really helpful for how we tell it as well and how we interpret it. Um, and I think the language of restlessness and rest really resonates with, with where we at, are, are at culturally. When I ask young adults to describe their lives, the word restless comes up all the time. Um, and I think the good thing is that there's, a, uh, there's an analogy in scripture uh, that answers that. Um, and, and you can overlay your whole story and begin to see where that's at work. It's a good book, man. I'm glad Thanks. you. I'm glad you. I'm glad, read uh, it. I'm glad you read it. Um, otherwise, I, you know, I knew my mom would read it, and like my dad, um, my wife. Um, I knew they'd read it, but I was glad to hear that other people have read it too. Um, I was. I wrote it when I wrote it when I set out to write it. I was originally just thinking, I'll just make a PDF that young adults could download at my church. Like that's what my intention was for it. And then I said, I think there's something here, and I that's where I pitched it originally, and. And uh, and ended up being something that's blessing adults far beyond. Yeah. Well, I know people are listening today who are going to pick it up, and they're gonna they're gonna experience the same blessing too. So thank you, thank you so much for doing that. Yeah. Thanks for uh, bringing me on today and uh, talking about memory. Yeah, it's been good. I hope you enjoy the conversation today with our friend, Austin Gone. He is the associate pastor at Bellevue Christian Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And he recently just finished, as he mentioned in the episode, his seminary studies at Trinity School for Ministry, also in Pittsburgh. His book, A Restless Age, How St. Augustine Makes Sense of Our 20s, helps us make sense of our 20s, is currently available. And you can find links to where you can purchase that in the show notes. Also, just a reminder, we had a chance to talk about my book, called, as I recall, Discovering the Place of Memory in Our Spiritual Life. That is also available, and I'll include a link on where you can find that. Thank you for listening again to the show. If you stream on my website, thank you for that. If you listen on iTunes and it delivers to your device and you listen to it on your commute every day or every week, I appreciate that. If you wouldn't mind, if you haven't already, uh, give us a rating or a review. If you like the podcast, that would be fantastic. So I hope you go and pick up one of the books that we discussed, even pick up Augustine's Confessions and give it a good read because I believe it will help you process your memories and the restlessness that come from them. And so until next time, be well, live wisely. Peace, friends.